Hey, what's up, everybody? This is Joey Calvez. I want to tell you guys a little bit about the Department of Metahuman Affairs. This one is a story about a team led by a retired sidekick, two felons, a failed actor from Broadway, and a reprogrammed cyborg. But their first mission is to stop the criminals who have robbed a bank, and they will have to set the world at ease. You're going to get 180 pages of entertainment action-packed awesomeness right here in the first six issues in a collected hardcover volume one all you got to do is head on over to kickstarter.com and type in the department of metahuman affairs or dma and check it out right now discussing probably the most famous unsolved mystery in Alaska history. But before we get into that, I just wanted to tell you about my new Patreon I just launched. All members will receive a sticker and have access to bonus content. Higher levels get more perks, such as the ability to pick the topic for a Patreon episode. These episodes will be pretty much from anywhere, and just the cases I find interesting that don't fit into the scope of my podcast. So if you're interested, I would greatly appreciate it. And the link is in the show notes. Without further delay, let's hop into tonight's mystery. Aviation is a huge deal in Alaska. There are many small villages that are only accessible by plane. And owning a small aircraft is not uncommon among the state's wealthier residents. With all of the small aircraft flying around in bad weather and over vast acres of unpopulated wilderness, we also have a long history of plane crashes and disappearances. As an example of our crash statistics, between 1998 and 2018, there were over 2,200 plane crashes, which is an average of slightly over 100 crashes a year. However, since these are small planes, often flying a lot lower to the ground than what most people are used to, the survival rates are quite a bit higher for these types of plane crashes than those involving commercial airlines. And for aircraft disappearances, our numbers are also quite a bit higher than the average state, simply because of how remote some of these places are that people are traveling to. Since the 1960s, there have been around 40 aircraft that have gone missing, never to be seen again. Obviously, a lot more went missing during that time period, but were found at some point later. And during World War II, Alaska had quite an active role, which I'll actually be discussing in depth in a future episode. And because of that, there was a lot more aircraft traffic, and subsequently, a lot more missing planes. However, I could not find statistics for those numbers. Some of these planes are actually found decades after going missing. 
For example, one that had gone missing in 1952 with 52 military men on board was not recovered until 2012. Some, however, are just never seen again. They're lost either in the ocean, buried in snow, fallen in a glacier, or maybe Bigfoot. However, I will be discussing the most famous missing airplane case in the state, which went missing on October 16, 1972. The details of the crash are not what made the case so memorable. Instead, it was the people on board that caused this to be a huge national story. The plane contained Hale Boggs, a congressman from Louisiana, Nick Bagich, an Alaskan congressman, a congressional aide named Russell Brown, and the pilot, Don Jones. Because of the people involved, the disappearance would go from being just your run-of-the-mill plane crash into being a massive mystery with conspiracy theories involved, possibly linking it to the JFK assassination and a whole bunch of other options. But let's start from the beginning. At the time of his disappearance, Hale Boggs was a 58-year-old Democrat congressman from New Orleans. He was the House Majority Leader and was in Alaska to help Nick Bagich fundraise for his re-election campaign. He had a lot of Washington clout and he was helping his fellow Democrat secure his re-election. He had actually been a congressman since 1946 and prior to that, he had been in the Navy during World War II. He also had been a member of the Warren Commission. When he disappeared and was later presumed dead, he left behind his wife, Lindy, whom he had been married to for 34 years, and three adult children. His children actually all went on to have quite high-profile careers, the most well-known being Cokie Roberts, who is a well-known journalist who was a political commentator for NPR and ABC News. At the time of his disappearance, Nick Bagich was 40 years old. He was a freshman congressman and had only been in Congress for less than a year. Before that, he had been a senator for eight years, as well as being a professor at the University of Alaska. He left behind a wife, Peggy Bagich, and six children. His three sons all became public figures. His son, Mark, became the mayor of Anchorage and then a senator. Interestingly enough, when he won the senator job in 2008, he replaced a very long-serving Republican senator named Ted Stevens, who actually died in the plane crash two years later. Nick's son, Tom, also became a senator as of 2017. And his son, Nick Jr., is a writer who has a website and book devoted to his belief that the H-A-A-R-P was created for nefarious purposes. For those of you that don't know, the H-A-A-R-P is an ionospheric research program that was jointly funded by the Air Force and the Navy and is run by the University of Alaska Fairbanks. It has been the subject of many conspiracy theories, and if you'd like a better description of what it does and the theories involved, I would highly recommend Googling it because I am not sciencey enough to explain it to you. 
And now that I've given some backstory on why this disappearance was such a huge story, let's hop into the day of the actual disappearance. The night before the ill-fated flight, the two men had been at a campaign dinner for Begich, which actually raised about $20,000, which that's quite a bit of money to raise in one night. And the next day they had another campaign dinner scheduled in Juneau. For those of you that may not know, Juneau is actually the capital of Alaska, and it's the only state capital that's not accessible by road. So you pretty much have to fly into it, or I guess take a boat to it if you're coming from pretty nearby. So on October 16, 1972, the two men, along with Begich's aide and the pilot, Don Jones, were flying in a Cessna 310 from Anchorage to Juneau for the campaign event that evening. It was a chartered flight with Pan-Alaska Airways, and the pilot was also the owner of the company. The Cessna 310 is a small twin-engine plane that fits between four and six people. The distance from Anchorage to Juneau is about 570 miles, and the four men would be taking that extremely common flight route on a rainy, windy day. The flight was expected to take approximately 3 hours 30 minutes. However, there were several weather advisories in regions throughout the flight route due to severe turbulence and poor visibility. Despite this, the pilot would be flying using visual flight rules, which would definitely not be recommended for this type of weather. Shortly after the plane took off that day at 9 a.m., the pilot spoke with a flight service station controller to inform them of his flight plan. The controller would later say that he yet again informed them of the poor weather on the route and double-checked that they had all of their safety equipment and they said that they did. That was the last time any contact was made with the plane. Within a few hours of the plane failing to arrive in Juneau and being unreachable by radio, a search began. It would end up being the largest search and rescue operation in the U.S. up to that time. By the time it ended, 39 days later, nearly 330,000 square miles would be searched by hundreds of people using boats, aircraft, and on foot. Since there was a portion of the flight route that went over open ocean, multiple Coast Guard boats were involved in searching that section. The Air Force also became involved using the most advanced electronic surveillance equipment to search from above. And there was also troops searching on the ground where they could access it. Even some civilians got involved and brought their own boats to search the ocean. One of the regions on the flight route, Portage Pass, had been having exceptionally bad weather on the day of the disappearance, which actually would have made visual flight rules next to impossible. It was also known that the Cessna they were flying on did not have supplemental oxygen available that would be necessary if they needed to switch to instrument rules and fly a little bit higher up. Other pilots that were flying in the region that day 
would later report severe turbulence, which made it difficult or impossible to even fly through the area. Many thought it likely that this is where the plane went down, and since the region is full of snowy mountains, valleys, and numerous glaciers, it has been the last known location of many aircraft over the years. The pilot, Don Jones, had told the controller that he had an emergency locator transmitter on board. So several aircraft flew over the route from Anchorage to Juneau using the electronic equipment to search for signals from the transmitter. However, several days after the disappearance, the ELT that belonged to the pilot was found in a different aircraft. Because of the inherent danger in operating a small aircraft in Alaska, there was actually a law stating that all aircraft needed to have one of these on board. It would actually start automatically signaling their location if a crash were to occur. So he had either knowingly lied to the controller or forgotten to pack the item. And unfortunately, since it was several days after the disappearance before it was realized that they didn't have the ELT with them, the Air Force wasted quite a bit of time and resources in searching for it. It was also found out that they hadn't taken any survival equipment on the plane, which was also a law. All survival equipment belonging to the company was accounted for back in Anchorage. And there have actually been many instances of people being rescued long after their plane crashed, but not having survival gear in this kind of weather would definitely cut their chances drastically. A lot of blame for the disappearance would end up being placed on the pilot. He obviously hadn't done a thorough check to make sure he had all of his safety gear on board and had knowingly flown in dangerous conditions. Previously, he'd actually had his license suspended in a different state for violating flight regulations. And he'd also previously been involved in a non-fatal plane crash earlier in his career. Ironically, he had previously written articles on proper flight safety for several aviation magazines. Then he ignored his own advice. Another problem related to the aircraft was that it did not have mid-flight de-icing capabilities, which is a very real danger and necessity when flying in the harsh conditions one can experience in Alaska. If they'd had to fly up to a higher elevation than expected to avoid the weather and come across icy conditions, it definitely could have contributed to the crash. The search was finally called off in the end of November. Both politicians had ended up winning their campaigns a month after going missing. In Alaska, a special election was held, and Begich ended up being replaced by Republican Don Young, who would serve on Congress until 2008. Hale Boggs's widow ended up taking over his House seat, which she held until 1991. For many, especially those familiar with the harsh landscapes and dangerous flying conditions in Alaska, it was a pretty cut-and-dry example of hubris leading to fatal mistakes. 
but for others, they thought there might be something more nefarious going on behind the scenes. Eight years prior to his disappearance, Boggs had been a member of the Warren Commission, which was created by Lyndon Johnson to discuss the assassination of JFK and come to a decision on the likely chain of events involved in the assassination. The commission resulted in a nearly 900-page report which stated their belief that Lee Harvey Oswald was the sole perpetrator and that Jack Ruby had been the sole perpetrator involved in killing Lee Harvey Oswald. But Box was actually one of seven members of the commission and one of four that didn't entirely believe that Oswald was the only shooter. So sometime since the plane disappeared, a conspiracy theory was created that Boggs' plane was purposely crashed because the government didn't want him discussing his disagreement regarding the Warren Commission's findings. It doesn't really make a lot of sense, though, for a few reasons. I mean, he was only one of four that didn't agree, and at least two of the others lived for 25 more years after the Commission completed their findings in 1964. The other man had actually died one year prior to Boggs' disappearance, but it was from a health problem. Not a government assassination. Besides, if the government had wanted to kill Boggs, it probably would have been an odd choice to make it happen while he was traveling with three innocent bystanders, and in a way that was sure to make it a huge mystery. There's also another conspiracy theory related to this disappearance, which has to do with the fact that about a year and a half before Boggs disappeared, he had publicly called for J. Edgar Hoover to resign as head of the FBI, and actually compared the FBI to the Gestapo. He accused the FBI of wiretapping congressional offices and sending agents undercover on college campuses to spy on students. Despite massive outcry against his statements and many questioning his sanity, he refused to back down on his beliefs. The scandal didn't truly die down until he disappeared. And actually, decades later, when numerous FBI documents were declassified, it was revealed that many of his accusations were correct. But as far as conspiracy theories go, you know, this one holds a lot more weight than the Warren Commission one. But again, J. Edgar Hoover wielded immense power at the time, and if he had wanted to take Boggs out, he could have done it in a much less suspicious way. I'm personally no conspiracy theorist, and I have to believe that the simplest answer here is most likely true. The pilot probably felt pressure to get the political heavy to Juno on time, and managed to make a bunch of bad choices leading to the plane crash. However, until, if and when further evidence is found, it will probably continue to be one of those topics that is continuously speculated on and conspiracy theorists debate about. Thank you for listening to this episode. I am interested in hearing your guys' thoughts on this mystery. It seems pretty straightforward to me, but 
You never know, maybe I'm missing something. Either way, it is fun to debate mysteries like this, and there are many more I look forward to covering in the future. But I should be back next week with hopefully a whole new episode or a reimagining of a previous episode. But until then, good night.